Thank you, Mary Ann. I'm excited to be here. <clears throat> so Mary Ann asked me to share a testimony of how God moved my heart to not just be focused on personal growth, but service to others. And um, I do better. She's given me a time limit, which is good for y'all. I do better if I have notes. That way I stay focused and we will finish on time. So um, pardon me for, for having notes. But um, I'm going to start with a verse. Paul um, was speaking to the church in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. So I'd like to give you a brief picture of how God grew the desire to share not only the gospel of God with others, but my life. I did not grow up in a Christian home, so I didn't go often to church. My idea of being a Christian was doing good deeds so that hopefully God would be pleased with me and love me. I believed that Jesus was the Son of God, but I thought I needed to do these things so that he would love me and accept me. When I was in high school, I met a girl whose life was very different from mine. She said she was a Christian. I thought I was a Christian, but I realized her life was very different. I heard for the first time about God's deep, gracious, redemptive love for me. I heard the gospel. I also learned that once I committed my life to Jesus, I didn't have to serve to earn God's favor. I already had God's favor through Jesus. So I could serve him because I loved him. Much like we do with a good friend or in a marriage, we do things for someone special, not to earn their love, but because we love them and they love us. That gave me the desire to love others the way he first loved me. One of my greatest desires when I was in college was to go on my first domestic or international mission trip. I wanted to share not only the gospel of God, but my life with others in a different place. So every spring, I asked my parents if I could go on a mission trip that summer. And every spring, they said no. <laughs> so even though I was frustrated, I knew God wanted me to honor them by obeying them, so I never went. During college, I also met a man who would become my husband, Tom, whose parents had been missionaries and spent their whole lives serving as either missionaries or in the pastorate. I thought I wanted to be a full-time, I put in quotes, Christian worker like they were, but I always remember them saying, we're all full-time Christian workers, no matter where we are vocationally. We are ministering full-time. Wherever we are, they said we should share the gospel and our lives with those around us. That stuck with me as God gave us four children and we began to raise them. Early on, I stayed home with our children and didn't have a lot of contact with many people outside our family and our church family. But God used my life even then. I had a hairdresser who at the time was not a believer. And after she uh, became a believer, she shared a story with me, a story that I didn't even remember. Um, she said that one day I came in to get my hair cut, and she asked me what had been going on, and I said, well, we've been looking at a minivan, we need a new car, and, uh, but we've been praying about it, we're just not sure which one, and she said, in my head, I was mocking you. She said, I was like, oh, are you praying about what color it should be, or it doesn't have tinted windows, you know, um, but um, later she told me 
that God used that, that kept coming back to mind. He used that to plant seeds in her heart. And many other Christians who went to her just shared their life with her, how they lived before the Lord. And, um, and, and eventually she came to know the Lord. So um, something that I didn't even remember doing was a seed that God used in her life. When our children got to middle and high school, they asked to go on mission trips. We took them on several, and finally, my desire to go on a mission trip was fulfilled. My first mission trip was to Belize with our oldest son, and it was with the youth group at FPC. I remember being excited and nervous at the same time, but what a joy it brought. We did some intense physical service on that trip. There's some people here who were on that trip with me. So we were exhausted at the end of each day, but so fulfilled knowing we were helping to build a school. I remember having a conversation during that trip with Katie Crosby and Emily then Barry about how cool it was that God would use us to be his hands and feet on earth, and that when the people of Belize had prayed for workers to come build, we had the privilege of being able to go and be those people. The next summer, God opened the door for me to go to one of my favorite places on earth, Casa Hogar, which many of you are familiar with, again with FPC. I remember our twin sons and I falling in love with Casa Hogar because it was and still is a tangible picture of the gospel. Here are children who don't know us at all, we don't speak their language, and yet they play with us and love us unconditionally while we're there. Isn't that how God loves us too? He loves us unconditionally. One of my most memorable parts of that trip was the last day when we were saying goodbye. Um, that trip was also Chuck Duggan's first time to Casa Hogar, and he and Taylor, his daughter, went, and Ellen was getting them ready and helping them pack, and he said, what is this in my suitcase? She said, coloring books and crayons. Trust me, Chuck. You don't know the language. This is a way to connect with kids. Chuck was like, yeah, right. Okay, whatever. Well... About a day or two into the trip, guess what I saw? Chuck coloring with a little girl. And every day, Chuck colored with that little girl. Well, the last day of the trip, we're all saying goodbye. Students have gone around and gotten on the vans. Chuck and I went back around to make sure everybody had left. And I heard this, Papa Oso. Now, this little girl had given Chuck this nickname. If you don't know Spanish, Papa Oso is Papa Bear. And so um, I hope I can say without crying, it still makes me cry. Um, he got down on one knee, and she ran up to him and hugged him around the neck and said, Papa Oso, I love you. Please come back and see me. And I thought in that moment, what a picture of the Father's love for us, and what a privilege that I got to see that and be part of that. So that was a blessing. Um, I got to go. Casa Hogar several more times, but then our church took a break for a couple of years. About the same time, after I'd been teaching for a while, I got a new job at my school, director of community service. I remember being so excited when our school's leaders approached me about the job because I would get to know some of the amazing ministries right here in our own city. God used two young people at the time to really give me a heart for Macon. First, our daughter invited me to come with her and a friend of hers to a ministry for those experiencing homelessness downtown called Come to the Fountain. Several families every week would bring meals to Central City Park, and we would literally just sit down and share not only the gospel but our own lives with the folks who came. 
Again, my thought was, wow, God, you let me get to know people I would otherwise not have met, share a meal with them, and have my own heart changed in the process. That same friend of Katie's who invited us to that ministry was part of a leadership class that I helped teach at our school. She came to me and said, I know our leadership team typically goes to the Bahamas in the summer to serve, but I really have a heart for Macon. Could I please help you plan and implement an in-town missions trip where we could serve people in Macon? God had already put that desire in my heart, so my quick answer was absolutely yes. That was in 2011, and we still offer that same in-town mission trip to students each year, focusing on needs in Macon. What a joy to see even a high school student desiring to share not only the gospel, but her own life with others. So, what have I learned from all this, and how can I encourage you? First, we're all busy, but... Take even what seems like the smallest opportunities to share the gospel and your life with others, like God allowed me to do with my hairdresser, and he will use it for his glory. Two, serving can begin here in Macon. Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we can serve here in Macon and in Georgia and to the ends of the earth, but we don't have to go to the ends of the earth. There's so many great ministries in Macon with which we can serve. <clears throat> Third, what are your gifts and talents? What do you love to do? There are so many opportunities to do many things in Macon. One of my favorite ministries that our students work with in Macon is campus clubs, ministry that's dear to FPC's heart as well. One of the things that I think they do really well is find out what people's talents are and what they love to do and then help them serve in that way. So a couple years ago, we had a student who loved robotics. And with his teacher's help, they went to campus clubs and they got to help start a robotics team at campus clubs. I have another friend, she's here tonight, who is an art teacher and loves to teach art. And so she goes weekly to campus clubs and shares art with the, the uh, students there. So what do you love to do? And what gifts have you been given? How can you use those to serve other people? Lastly, service can be a family thing. You're never too old or too young to do service. Sometimes we think service will take us away from our families, but you can serve together. Last week at Casa Hogar, the whole Foshi family and the whole Chan family were there serving. Our family has had the opportunity to all, except our oldest son, go to Casa Hogar. I'll always remember Katie taking her there for the first time when she was 15, and at the end of the week, she turned to us and said, I love this place, and I'm going to live here someday. And if you know her, she and Mary Madison Foshi live there now and serve there. Um, why did we have that opportunity? Because this church encouraged us to serve. They encouraged us to do a small um, short-term mission trip. They encouraged us to serve in Macon. After all, our Savior said even he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So, Marianne, thank you so much for this opportunity to share and also thank the Lord that he lets us be his hands and feet on earth to share the gospel and our lives with others. Thank you.
so you can see how this is, is to challenge you. Um, the, our, our next speaker, uh, I found it a little more difficult to figure out exactly how to introduce her. Um, and I asked her, she said, just say that I moved, we moved, we moved here, she and her family moved here in 1978 and they just have fallen in love and being a part of Macon. And, um, you know, it's really hard. One of the things that, that, uh, I was thinking about this the other day, you know, when you try to introduce someone that you feel like, this is a horrible thing to say, but it feel like is 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 a very humble person. Then you 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 bear you're scared. By the time you finish, they won't be. And <laughs> so you can. <laughs> I'd like to introduce to you Beverly Olson. Beverly is a member of our church. She is in our choir, and she um, is is. I know. I've told her she has time. She. Last night, she was answering telephones, taking telephone pledges. But if there's a cause, there's somewhere, you, she will be doing it. And you can, too. Thank, Thank you. you. Hi, I'm Beverly Olson. In case you didn't know me. Um, to know something about me, you have to know where and where I came from. I was born and grew up on Miami Beach. My parents married for 51 plus years, four daughters in the family. I'm eight years younger than my older sisters who were sent off for high school and then college. I also was born with muscular ptosis of the eyelids and cross-eyed with double vision. I spent two weeks of every summertime in a hospital or hotel for five years getting my eyes operated on for five years, and from five to nine years old. Um, some clarification is needed in what I said. I grew up on, my, on a private island in Miami Beach called Indian Creek Island. There was a golf course surrounded by tennis courts and clubhouse in the middle of 21 homes. Ours was number four, uh, meaning that it was almost at the end of the island. It's sort of an inverted question mark. It looks like you come across a guarded gate and um, you got onto the island. Uh, some neighbors on the island, you'd recognize the names. Woolworths were next door. They were from the five and 10 cent store. In case kids don't know what that is, that's like the dollar store now. Uh, Colonel and Mrs. Johnson from Johnson & Johnson lived down the street. Mr. and Mrs. Sayers from Sears, Chicago. Mr. and Mrs. Coles, the Life magazine publishers. My grandmother and step-grandfather, Pritchard, who is Standard Oil of Canada. And the Brules, which had, who had oil wells in Oklahoma. It used to be known as Millionaire's Row, as the tour boats used to ride by as I was fishing off the dock. I'd waved all the people who were waving to me. The only other child on the island was Janie Brule, two years younger than I was, and we would find adventures digging holes and covering them with pine straw so that we could catch a rabbit, or driving the golf cart down Thrill Hill 
Janie's father was the first person in the country to receive a pig valve for an aorta transplant. So I remember, or so I remember. Uh, wild marsh rabbits were everywhere on the island, as, we, as well as land crabs. Janie and I got to stay home from school one day and got to see President Kennedy's helicopter land on our island in an empty lot. We got to have our pictures taken with him riding in his convertible car behind us in 1961. We know, I have to find that picture. We know when they stopped using convertibles sometime after President Kennedy was shot and killed in Dallas in 1962. My father and I were the official rabbit exterminators on the island and another chance for us to be together. When dad would come home from work around six o'clock, he would say, kiddo, are you ready to go? I was always ready to go and take a box lined with newspapers from the garage, a rag, an old black dog, that's what he used to call buttons, old black dog in the back seat of our 59 Rambler station wagon, and we'd go off rabbit hunting uh, right at sunset when they were just coming out. You could see their little heads up. The dog stayed in the car while I got out to load up the box with dead rabbits that either dad or I had shot with a 22. It taught me safety with bullets and guns and ricocheting around water. The governess, we, I had a governess that I grew up with, and that's sort of like a nanny now. The governess went on vacation in summertime, so we would take longer cruises to the Bahama Islands. We had a yacht and a fishing boat docked at our dock. The yacht was elsewhere in a different marina, but the uh, fishing boat was at our house. In one of those summertime trips, we were on our yacht and fishing boat led the way and um, which we had, were coming back from the Bahamas. My father had just caught a world record blue marlin as we were coming back to Miami from Cat Cay. We left early in the morning so we would miss low tide and I was up in the wheelhouse with the captain. In a couple of hours, I left for the head, or bathroom, on a boat. When below, I stepped on carpet and sank to the floor. Water was up to my knees. I ran back up the stairs and told my parents and captain that there was water everywhere. Uh, the captain shut down the throttles and said that he thought the boat was cutting through the waters awfully easily, for being as rough as it was. And the mate went below and returned, saying it was more than the toilet overflowing, and called our fishing boat to come back and pick us up, and called SOS to the Coast Guard. They dropped a bilge pump to the captain and mate, and we jumped on to the fishing boat as my father took videos of the crew and the sinking boat as we valiantly sought to save it, but they finally jumped on board just with us. We watched as it sank, and an air it went down like this, and then an air pocket in the front made it pop up. So the Coast Guard dropped a lead, said that we could not leave it sticking out in the middle of the open ocean. 
So they dropped a lead bomb on it, and it was, as it was a menace to navigation in the open ocean. My sister Barbara and her husband were in Miami at the docks, waiting for us to arrive. The Coast Guard reported that they were searching for survivors. She was very happy to see us all get off the fishing boat. Follow me into my senior year in high school. That was in, that was, I was 13 years old then. Follow me to my senior year in high school. Senior class president of the all-girls school in Coconut Grove, Miami. Had a boyfriend in Montana, and suddenly I was swept off my feet by a real con artist boyfriend. After my parents were on to him, and I started bouncing checks for him, he slapped me, and that was that. I went back to my father, and with tears, tears after all this time, <laughs> and with tears in my eyes, I apologized for everything I had ever done to hurt him. He had tears in his eyes, too. That summer, I went to Montana and visited the boy I had really cared about. One day, after working at his family's ranch in Montana, his mother suggested that he take me to Yellowstone Park and see Old Faithful blow. Well, we started off and saw that, that we still had some time before it was going to blow again. So we went off, and he was going to show me how to mountain climb. And there was a beautiful spot by the Yellowstone River. Tied together, we started down the mountain, and I was to follow. He hit shale rock, and we both lost footing, and I don't remember anything from the fall except what he told me. When he came to at the bottom, he was on land, and I was face down in the water. So I had brain damage. That's why I don't remember things. <laughs> he pulled me out of the river and started CPR. He was a climber and a proficient skier and did ski patrol. He made it back up the mountain to get help for me. The second car stopped, the second car, the first car did not want to stop. He was bloody, they didn't want to stop. So they kept going, second car stopped to here. Get help from my girlfriend, she's in the canyon. It took 10 rangers and six hours to get me to the hospital in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. After a few days, they, um, my father had them fly me to University of Utah Medical Center where they were gonna do brain surgery on me. I was still in a coma. Where they were, uh, no surgery was done. I kept improving. I came out of a coma between a week and 10 days. After two months in the hospital, learning to walk, talk, and write again at 18 years old, I returned to do my rehab with physical, occupational, and speech therapy in Miami. Now I'm making up for that lost time talking. <laughs> Four more months of therapy at what used to be called the Cripple Children's Clinic in Miami which my mother had helped raise funds for, for founding. And she never thought her own child, because I was 18, would ever use their services, but that's where I ended up. The last I knew of it, it was the Easter Seals of Miami now. God wasn't ready for me yet and wouldn't let me go. I still had work to do. 
I met my husband, Ed, in May of 1970, and we married in June of 1971. From early eye surgeries, which were a big deal in 1950s, to the sinking of our yacht in the deepest part of the open ocean in 1963, to falling 194 feet down the mountain and stopping breathing underwater, I can look back on my life and realize that I had been saved for a reason. For a reason. It was to become a Christian. Like my earthly father who forgave me for being stupid because I really didn't see the light. Jesus forgave me for all the grief, sorrow, and sadness I had given my parents. It had been given, they had given so much, and much as I've been given so much, and much is expected of me, as it says, I believe it's Ecclesiastes. To the, to the young woman here tonight, I want to tell you that I love that you are here to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. I could never say Jesus Christ before because to me, my mother would say, oh, and, and she, she'd get mad at something and she would be drinking and she might be smoking. And she, um, she didn't mean that, I don't think she meant to say it that way, but it came out. And so I always thought Jesus Christ was a bad word. Uh, but now... <laughs> I want to tell you that I love it that you are here to celebrate the birth of Christ. I didn't come to know Jesus until I was 27 or so, when I came to hear Reverend Jim Baird preach. He was here at the church. His vivid preaching with his Chicago accent spoke to me. It was as if I was the only one in the pews. The Bible came alive and I finally understood it. A burden was lifted from my shoulders that had weighed me down for years, especially being a newlywed. What a joy in my heart. I know what it meant to be born again. I don't know how people continue to live their lives with no savior. Let us help the poor and needy, reminding them that they need a savior humble themselves and repent to receive God's grace. Christians stand out for their beliefs, but it's a saving grace that only Jesus can give you. Like the hymn says, oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. There are so many places to work or volunteer in Macon that need women with that extra caring touch. Stay strong in the Lord and lean on him in your times of despair and sorrow. And I wish you a very Merry Christmas. And remember Christ's birth as the reason for the season. And don't get bogged down with presents and decorations. Thank you.